navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 40 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. At Microsoft Ignite, Microsoft announced that Azure SQL DW would be renamed to Azure Synapse Analytics, as well as get several new features and performance upgrades. They also provided a very interesting demo and comparison versus Google's BigQuery. And you can easily find this on YouTube if you're interested in seeing it. Warner and I covered a SQL DW back in episode 20, so I thought it would be a good time to revisit and review some of the enhancements. Hey, Warner, welcome back to the Datascape. Hey, Chris, how are you today? Happy to be back here to discuss the latest and greatest in the Datascape. Excellent and great to have you. So let's start with why was SQL DW rebranded? So the reason why it was rebranded, well, first of all, now for everybody to understand the terminology. So now SQL DW falls under the umbrella of what is called Azure Synapse Analytics. But Synapse Analytics is also not just DW, right? So the concept of having SQL Data Warehouse is basically has been turned into having a SQL resource pool inside Azure Synapse Analytics. And then Synapse Analytics itself is basically a service that offers compute, either relational compute through SQL Data Warehouse or big data compute through using managed clusters with Spark. And it bundles together a bunch of other things that we'll go more into detail later on in the podcast to make it or attempt to make a full end-to-end analytics development experience. Let's dive into some of those features now then. So why don't you start with SQL pools? So SQL pools is basically just the rename of SQL Data Warehouse. So for people that are not familiar to it, you can definitely go and check out our full-blown episode on SQL Data Warehouse. But the idea here is that under one Synapse Analytics workspace, you can have multiple SQL Data Warehouses, right? For example, currently, each one of these SQL Data Warehouses is tied to their own storage. But the concept of SQL pools opens the possibility as well that in the future, they will have, for example, you could attach multiple data warehouses to the same storage. I think that's probably one of the future directions that they might be taking, similar to what the competitor Snowflake already does with their concept of virtual warehouses, for example. What else is new in Azure Synapse? So we have the idea that is a fully integrated environment, right? So Inside the Synapse workspace, you have access to a bunch of different things. So I'll run down quick into what you can do inside one of these workspaces. So they have built the full integration with Azure Data Factory, so you can do ETL inside the Synapse workspace. They have Azure SQL Data Warehouse integrated to it and the querying experience as well. As I mentioned before, there's going to be big data pools as well, which is basically Spark. So if you want to run some Python through a notebook on the browser as well, you can do that in the Synapse Analytics workspace. They obviously do in tight integration with Power BI, which is Microsoft's flagship business intelligence product that is doing really well. And we actually, in a previous podcast episode, we highlighted that the latest Gardner Magic Quadrant placed Power BI even on top of Tableau this year as well, right? So obviously they want to leverage that momentum with Power BI and put it inside Workspace Analytics as well. So the idea again is that you go into your workspace of Synapse Analytics and you have everything that you need to do to be able to develop or consume the analytics, right? So how is data ingested? 
So there's a couple of different ways. So because of the mixed nature of Synapse Analytics, you have the option of just ingesting into SQL Data Warehouse, which usually can be done, like I said, using Azure Data Factory, which is the de facto ETL service that's integrated into the Synapse Analytics workspace. And Synapse Analytics, because of the big data capabilities, is also tightly integrated with Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. Right, so there's two ways there that you will be getting data into your uh, Synapse Analytics workspace. If you are interested in just doing analytics on structured data, our recommendation, of course, is to load it into SQL Data Warehouse because it will give you the best performance for sure once it's converted into the column store. Microsoft has done incredible investments in the column store performance, batch mode, the ability to run vectors of thousands of rows at once through CPUs that this gives in aggregations and groupings, it gives really, really good performance compared to just a regular B-tree style table. But if you also have a lot of unstructured data or you have some raw data that you didn't have a purpose to put it right now inside the DW, but maybe somebody will experiment with it later on, then you can leave it all inside your Azure Data Lake Storage account. And then from Data Lake Storage, you can pull it in using the big data pool with Spark, and I'm doing analytics through that. Or you can also just eventually pull it in through ADF or directly with SQL statements into SQL Data Warehouse and do analytics on SQL Data Warehouse as well. Right? Okay. And so you mentioned Spark, and it's a little different to your Spark in the Microsoft ecosystem, at least for me. But what role does Spark play in the Synapse environment? So the idea here was that people could just go to one workspace and do both their, let's call it classic, for lack of a better word, classic relational SQL style analytics. And if necessary, they can, in the same workspace, switch over and just do some Python, for example, or some Scala or some Java and write something that is more of big data style processing using all the Spark capabilities, right? Okay. including, for example, things that are even newer in the Spark ecosystem, like Delta tables. Microsoft is using the open source implementation of Spark for Synapse Analytics. So the idea here, again, is that you will be able to do both styles of analytics in one workspace. Something very interesting, too, is that they are tightly integrating both sets of let's call it data sets that you can produce. So you'll have an integrated catalog where you can see all the tables that are in your SQL Data Warehouse. And also if you define any tables through Spark, then you will be able to see them in the same integrated catalog, right? And interestingly as well, there will be the capability, if you have both pools active, you will be able to query back and forth through them transparently, right? So you will be able to reach your Data Warehouse tables easily with Spark, or if you're writing SQL, you will be able to easily reach the tables that you have defined on Spark through the SQL as well. Okay, that's really neat. So yeah, it's pretty much just breaking down the barrier between, oh, I had this data in Spark on Data Lake Storage Gen 2, uh, now I have to import it all in DW because I wanted to write a join kind of thing, right? All mm -hmm. that friction or necessary extra step kind of gets blurred now or eliminated because you can easily jump back and forth in the same statement between the two different runtimes. Okay, that's really neat. On the topic of statements, one of the things I found intriguing from a strategy perspective anyway back in episode 20 is Microsoft reinventing SQL as USQL 
in SQL DW. Is that still a thing? So USQL wasn't a SQL DW feature. It was another service that was called Azure Data Lake Analytics. To really explain what this is, back in, what year was it? Maybe 2015, something like that. Microsoft decided to come out with Azure Data Lake that is now known as Gen 1, Azure Data Lake Storage, and Azure Data Lake Analytics. And Azure Data Lake Storage was a different storage service that was for just purely Data Lake. And at Azure Data Lake Analytics, they came up with this different language called USQL that kind of tried to do the exact same thing that they're doing now, but it was a proprietary language that was making it easy to use USQL statements to query unstructured data. And they kind of figured out as they were going along that they were trying to reinvent the wheel and it wasn't really necessary or it was kind of like, what is the point of competing with the open source ecosystem, right? And I can see how in the new Microsoft, it's not flying anymore, you know? Like the previous Microsoft might've thought that, ooh, but there's some proprietary thing here that's gonna be valuable or something patentable or something like that. But I mean, let's look even at the Edge browser. Now it's Chromium-based as well, right? So this philosophy, it's permeating all of Microsoft at this point, right? So instead of fighting the open source ecosystem, they thought, well, this makes no sense. Let's just shelf what is known as Azure Data Lake Gen 1. And with it, it's also the shelving of USQL. So USQL now, which was the language of Azure Data Lake Analytics, I would say is probably not going to be developed anymore at this point. There's people that implemented solutions in it, so the service is still up and running, but I wouldn't recommend that anybody at this point implement a new solution using it because the direction right now is just to slowly over time probably help those people migrate over to using Synapse and either integrate Synapse with T-SQL through SQLDW or just get those people to start using Spark to get at that data that they had there before. Makes sense. So for the customer who maybe they're in more of a hybrid solution, which I think is actually most people or most established uh, business, I know there's a lot of born in the cloud, not for them, but for the others, like the enterprise maybe who's using this or trying it out or creating some MVPs or POCs, how do they move data? Like they may have a collection of data already in Azure, but they may already have some data in disparate other data sources on-prem or in their other data centers. How do customers move the data from on-prem into the Synapse environment for analytics and processing? So the current architecture that we are recommending and that we have implemented successfully is to just figure out a way to get that data into the new Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. And as opposed to Gen 1, Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2 has been written now as basically a software layer on top of the regular Azure Blob Storage. So I'm way more confident in recommending that people can adopt Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2 without the fear that it's gonna get deprecated like Gen 1 did, right? The mistake of Gen 1 was really that Microsoft was trying to basically build a separate hardware and software stack just for Data Lake Storage, which didn't really make a lot of sense because they already had tons of investments in the blob storage, right? So the direction now is to take this data lake storage gen 2 and just build it as a software layer on top of the existing blob storage and i feel really confident that this path that they've chosen is not going anywhere i'm surprised it boggles my mind that they didn't go this way the first time around so the current architecture that we're recommending for everybody is to just get their data somehow into Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. And then that somehow it really depends on the client. If we're talking about I want to move 
tens of terabytes over to Azure, it's a lot easier to either do the express import, which you ship something to Microsoft, and Microsoft just copies it over to your blob storage. And if somebody is like, oh my God, but my data, whatever, you can definitely just send it encrypted if that's what you want to do. But obviously that has its caveats that you would need to encrypt terabytes of data, ship it, and then you know de-encrypt it again and all that stuff. Alternatively, Microsoft does have their data box, which is a hardware solution. They ship it to you, very similar. I forget the name of the Google equivalent. They all have the same mm-hmm. equivalent thing, yep. right? Amazon, I think it was called the Snowball. But yeah, the, all three major providers provide this service, right, where they have some sort of hardware. A lot of the times, it's not even something that you purchase. You can lease it, so they'll send you one, you load it all up with your data. The hardware itself, when you set it up, you can use a Microsoft-provided key or you can use your own provided key and it's hardware encrypted as well. So it's not as painful as software encrypting it. And then when you get back and you put it on dialect storage, you can use the same key to get all your data back in there, right? So if you're moving lots and lots and lots of data, that probably makes more sense to just do at least an initial data load using mm-hmm. a device like that. Because, you know, it's built for purpose. You just lease it. Once you're done, you send it back to Microsoft and that's it. If we're talking about, A, I'm starting from scratch today. So over time, I might grow to terabytes, but I mean, I'm just going to grow by, you know, one gigabyte a day or something like that, Mm -hmm. right? Then there's a lot of options, right? Most people will have either a site-to-site VPN to Azure or they'll have Express Route, which is the faster, more secure way. If you're really thinking seriously about integrating your production on-premises to Azure, Express Route is definitely the way to go, right? It's a private circuit, so it doesn't go through the filthy internet. (laughs) And then you can just use whatever ETL tool you want, right? Data Factory is there. If you want to just use a Microsoft managed software solution, Data Factory is also a Gen 2 solution nowadays. (laughs) And pretty much just like Data Lake, it's a big leap in terms of functionality over the Gen 1 Data Factory. Mm-hmm. And I think we've covered a lot of Data Factory capabilities previously in the podcast, but in case people are not familiar, I mean, Data Factory now does all sorts of scheduling, integrates with hundreds of different services, including many, many services outside of the Microsoft ecosystem. It supports not just moving data around anymore, but it can actually transform data with what they call mapping and wrangling data flows. It has become quite a bit of a more robust full feature solution. And if the client has something else that they prefer, I mean, at this point, something like Pentaho, Talent, Informatica, any of those other big ETL players, they all have Azure integrations at this point, right? Pretty much all the big ETL players are all fully integrated with all the big three major cloud providers, right? Okay, which actually brings up the question, does that mean that the Synapse data to a Tableau or any of the software that you mentioned, does it just look and feel like a SQL Server database? Like if they didn't have a specific connector, could I just use the SQL connector? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good question because sometimes people think that by choosing something like Synapse, then they're locking themselves into something like Power BI, right? They think, oh, I have to buy into the entire bundle. Right. And and that's not the case. Yeah, that's not the case at all. It, just because the workspace is tightly integrated with the Microsoft tools, which obviously, because I mean, they are building it themselves, it would make no sense if they didn't want to leverage the tight integration. It doesn't mean you have to. Right. So SQL DW will allow you to have just a regular endpoint. And that's just a regular TCP endpoint that uses the TDS SQL protocol. So the regular SQL server native client and drivers connect to DW, Mm -hmm. and they work really well. So any tool 
like Tableau, Click, uh, Excel, you can connect it and query CW as well. And if any of these other tools as well that can run code against Spark, you also get like an endpoint there that you can connect the tool. If you have a big data pool running inside your Synapse Analytics, it's the same thing. You can just do whatever you want there. It just looks like any other Spark cluster to any other type of tool. So the idea, of course, there, I mean, any sort of tool that you'll be able to use with your own Spark cluster that you decided to run, you will be able to connect to Azure Synapse as well. So there's no plan there to lock down the ecosystem, right? We have to mention this many, many times. Those people that still think that Microsoft cares about those things, they're totally missing the ball. Like that's not how they play the game anymore. Right. So let's change gears here a little bit and shift over to covering security because all this blanket access sounds lovely, but I can hear a compliance person getting upset. So what security protocols and features are available? Synapse Analytics is trying to provide pretty much as robust capabilities as what you would get with a regular SQL server. So for example, if we start with something like encryption addressed, that's already something mm -hmm. that is there and it has the possibility of either using Microsoft managed keys or you can bring your own key as well, right? So this is already something that is a big compliance thing nowadays, whether the data is encrypted at rest or not. I do have to say, I see a lot of people that for some reason they believe, or you know, maybe their compliance department believes. I'm gonna be, go just a little bit of topic right now, <laughs> but I've seen <laughs> this, 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 yeah. I've seen this, uh, the bring your own key thing is very interesting to me because not to say that you can't do it, obviously, but a lot of people just sign up for it. And I don't know if they understand what they're signing up for. Like once you are saying, I want my encryption key to be the one that handles all this, if you yourself don't have more robust security to protect that key than you think Microsoft does, I'm not quite sure what you're getting out in terms of security posture. You know what I mean? Like right. Microsoft, I'm sure that all those keys that are Microsoft managed, it must be incredibly, probably requires a multi-signature access to be able to get to the root certificate that manages all those keys, meaning that you don't just have one account that owns it. It's probably something that requires, you know, let's say three out of five accounts to show up to their key. Kind of like that's what the big root certificate providers of the internet do, right? Like it's not just one person that can authenticate. It needs three out of five people to authenticate, to change that certificate type of thing, right? I'm pretty sure Microsoft is probably something similar like that. Now think about your own company and think about what is your protocol and security to handle that key. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that you can handle it better than Microsoft, right? If you do, okay, go <laughs> ahead, go for it. Uh, but I'm very skeptical that most people have better security protocols, to be honest. I generally agree with what you just said. I suspect the theory is that if you have the key and nobody else does, then nobody else does, including Microsoft. Yeah. yeah. No, of course, but it's like, how do you handle it? How do you protect it, right? Like, if, yeah, is it just gonna go into like a USB that's in a locked cabinet somewhere, or do you actually have like a proper hardware security module on premises? Hopefully, that's the case, because mm -hmm. you can integrate your hardware security module with Azure Key Vault, for example. If that's yeah. the case, then yeah, you're in a good position. But also. Is it highly available? Do you have it protected by multiple identities? You know, all these other things that go into protecting mm -hmm. your own keys. Yeah. But the capability is there, right? So the capability is definitely there. 
in terms of actual functional things, it supports all the security things that SQL Server supports, including some of the latest new features as well. So things like dynamic data masking or row level security that were implemented in the last couple of releases of SQL Server, they are on SQL DW as well. Oh, great. So you can implement that, yeah. Just for the listeners, can you just explain what dynamic data masking is and the use case for it? Yeah, sure. So dynamic data masking, kind of like what the name implies, is you define a policy that says this particular field should be masked in this particular way. And it's kind of like a regular expression type looking thing. So classic scenario, of course, is, you know, we have credit card numbers and we define a mask where we only want to see the last four digits of the 16, right? Right. So that makes sense. And you define the mask, but as the name says, it's dynamic. So the data itself under the covers is still unmasked. So you can still do compute, you can still find it, index it and whatnot. It's just in the results that gets pushed to the client, Mm -hmm. the actual data is manipulated to be masked, right? So that's what dynamic data masking does, which is pretty neat. I mean, you can see how this is useful for, let's say, uh, you have PII in your system and maybe the call center needs to authenticate somebody, but they obviously shouldn't see their entire credit card number, but maybe they'll just ask the person, you know, what's the last four digits, or maybe they need to validate, hey, did you do a transaction with this credit card that ends in whatever, right? And you can apply this to anything, right? You can mask addresses, you can mask credit cards, you can mask emails, you could mask full names, you could mask zip codes, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds pretty good. And so what about for the modern database consultant or database professional or data professional, whichever you want to use, what administrative tasks are there for the IT professional to perform? So there's not a ton of what people would think is administrative tasks, because this is a really as a service type of offering, right? And if you look at the integration that it offers as well, is a service that is geared towards making data engineer, data analyst, data scientists very, very productive, right? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like a sign of the times as well, right? If you're a DBA and you look at a service like this and you see, oh, there's only like a few little tasks that I would have to do here, then, well, maybe that means that you should be expanding into being the guy that develops with Data Factory and or integrates with Power BI or does the data modeling and so on, right? Mm -hmm. There is a few things that I would say that could be in the realm of DBA, if the DBA takes their time, obviously, and levels up their skills. Because, I mean, security is still pretty much a DBA concern, in my opinion. All these features that we just talked about, dynamic data masking, role-level security, the handling of the keys and all this, if you are responsible for being the data guy in your company, you should be really well-versed in all these because security is not going anywhere. And security is not something that can be super easily automated either, right? Nobody's going to tell you what are the policies that you need to follow for your company, right? You need to understand those and be able to provide what you think the company should do. Or hopefully you are taking that leadership and being that person, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other one, obviously, is just performance. And if you are familiar with SQL Server, I'm sure you can leverage your skills to figure out performance in SQL.warehouse slash SQL pool in Synapse. But it does require some studying for sure because it's a distributed system, right? So sometimes the key to a particular query running faster is not really into the specific execution plan of the query as we would see it in SQL Server. It's more about the distributed execution plan, right? There's two levels of execution plans in DW, right? There's the distributed execution plan 
and then there's the local execution plan on each node. So you have to understand that, you know, there's a big difference there between each one of them, right? In the local one, it's just like a regular SQL query, but the distributed one is what tells the system, look, you're gonna first compute this, then maybe you're gonna send it to these other nodes, and then you're gonna aggregate it into tempdb, and then you're gonna send it into like the head node, and then the head node will do the final aggregation and will return the answer type of thing, right? And those are still tweakable in some ways because, you know, DW does give you some level of control over how your data is distributed in the cluster, for example, mm -hmm. right? It's a different set of skills. I think competent people that are high-level professionals at SQL Server can easily adopt it though, just a matter of sitting down and studying for it. So yeah, performance, security, I think those are two of the main concerns and from an administrative point of view. But at the end of the day, if that's all you think you're gonna do, you should just start to broaden your horizons and look at all the other stuff that you need to do in a full end-to-end -end solution mm -hmm. and you know, level up your skills through that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds good. It brings up another interesting thing I've been thinking about earlier on in my career and how you and I met is, you know, we were SQL Server database administrators together. And when I looked for that job and any other jobs prior to that or around that time, I looked for SQL DBA or Microsoft or very tied to a specific technology. To your point, I mean, I wouldn't use the term Microsoft DBA, but maybe something like the whole role is going to be rebranded as like a Microsoft data engineer. Right. Or maybe there will still be the idea of a Microsoft DBA just to encompass Azure and on-premises or wherever you run SQL Server. Mm -hmm. But the actual, you know, what we've talked about before about the actual DBA tasks, that list is going to continue to shrink down, right? Yeah. So my suggestion to most people is that, yeah, you can focus on one platform because honestly, like, being an expert in all three major cloud providers is pretty much near impossible. Right. Like just the amount of you know information that you need to process and differentiate and to be a high level pro, you basically just become a jack of all trades instead, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's easier for people to just focus on one platform. So if you are looking into Azure, then just go all in on Azure. Think about not just being the administrator type of role, but also really strongly look at the data engineering type of role, right? Yeah. Be the guy that knows not just SQL DW, but also knows data factory that is also uh, familiar with how do we ingest the data, right? And how we serve it to Power BI or how do we serve it to Tableau? But maybe there's some optimizations you can do there, right? There's features uh -huh. in DW like results at caching, materialized views that allow you to really optimize how you are serving the result to the end clients. All this kind of stuff is definitely goes beyond of what a SQL Server DBA is. And if somebody will just continue calling themselves just SQL Server DBA, I would think you're probably limiting your prospects quite a bit. Yeah, I think so too. So where can people best learn about Synapse Analytics and you know learn to use it and develop those skills? Well, right now, I would definitely suggest that if you don't have an Azure account, you definitely go on create one and you can use Synapse the lowest tier of Synapse is about $2 an hour if you want to just learn. So one day of learning will not be too terrible. You know, you'll spend right. 16 bucks or so, right? Right, right. That's true. But a uh, pro tip for the users, uh, if you go with the defaults when you provision your Synapse environment, it is not $2 an hour. It's about $19.56 or so, at least uh, on the regions that I chose and at the time of recording. So uh, I burned my Azure credits. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I yeah, you gotta be, burn you, them right away. <laughs> you got to be careful with portal defaults. Those will come back and bite you 
because the portal does not default to giving you the least amount of resources, right? Usually the portal defaults, they just default to giving you like what will be considered like a mid-level production config some of the times. So the default from the portal will be like a DW1000, which is $20 an hour. Obviously, you don't want to burn $160 just learning in one day. So just make sure that you look what you're signing up for. Uh, you can go all the way down to DW100, mm -hmm. and DW100 is about $2 an hour to learn. Microsoft has lots of good material online, of course. Pluralsight has good material as well for all this stuff. If you want to go deeper and look at some demos, obviously the podcast is just you know a listening experience. I do heavily recommend just go and search for Microsoft Ignite 2019, and you'll be able to find all the presentations they did on Synapse and some of the stuff they did, like the competing stuff they did to try to show how it behaves compared to a BigQuery and Redshift and stuff like that. Right. Uh, the other thing that I noticed that I, I really liked is you do have the ability to provision it with sample data. So you don't have to then figure out how to go find some data just so you can start playing, running a few samples. Absolutely. Things. Yeah. They need to make it really easy for people to just get up and running, right? Yeah, they have to provide that. It's also a good way to get your feet wet with some of the other services because of the tight integration. So you can easily try out Data Factory. You can easily, if you've never used Power BI, you can easily just create a... Remember, the Power BI comes with a free account that allows you to do a, quite a bit of reporting as long as you know you don't need any sort of enterprise features or security features. Right. And you can play around with it and learn. Uh, you can probably learn like 99% of Power BI's capabilities on a free account, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good opportunity for people to just try to get a feel for these other parts of the stack if you're not familiar with them. It's definitely not going to hurt your career. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about Synapse Analytics? No, I just want to say, well, right now we can talk about the status. So we're recording this at the end of the first week of March in 2020. So right now, what happened is if you were a pre-existing SQL Data Warehouse customer, then you are technically now a Synapse customer using a SQL pool. And that already happened back at the end of last year, end of 2019, the portal has been rebranded, the documentation has been rebranded and so on. However, the actual Synapse features, like the thing that really differentiates Synapse from SQL DW, so the addition of the big data pools, the on-demand compute, the integrated catalog, all that stuff is considered a preview and is in private preview right now. So I would expect Microsoft will probably come out of private preview into a public preview by probably late spring. I would give it probably a couple of more months. I would be surprised if by June it's not already in the hands of everybody, at least in a preview way. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't even played around with SQL DW slash the SQL pools, that is available right now today. And yeah, I definitely encourage you to start there anyway. Good suggestion, Warner, as usual. Well, that's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us. And to do that, I suggest you write a short, honest review on something like iTunes, or why not tell a friend that you like the podcast and where to find it? Also, we love your feedback. So you can email that feedback anytime at datascape at gmail.com, and I respond to every email. Thanks, and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.